12, episode 11. Please proceed with care. This podcast contains adult material. Welcome to 12 with Sarah Sloan, a series that started off as a vehicle for exploring the 12 different ways a woman is apparently able to orgasm, with the ambition of empowering women and those who adore them by exploring the female erotic. So much has happened since I started. Twelve has surprised and educated me in ways that I could never have imagined. If you are new, welcome. But I recommend you start at the beginning of the series. This episode is dedicated to the spot, or zone orgasm which involved H exploring my body to find an area that sent me wild, to the point of climax. At the end of episode 10, The Mouthgasm, I talked about the spot being a place that is non-erogenous. Following further research, however, I now know that this was wrong. Whoops, sorry. Allow me to explain. It turns out that there are actually two types of erogenous zones, specific and non-specific zones. Who would have thought? Erogenous zones are areas of the body that have heightened sensitivity, the stimulation of which may generate a sexual response. Specific zones include the genitals, nipples and lips. Non-specific zones which is what we're focusing on, have, according to Wikipedia, skin similar to normal haired skin, as well as the normal high density of nerves and hair follicles. Well, that description doesn't really help me, because it sounds like the skin of non-specific erogenous zones is just the same as the skin on the rest of our bodies. But then I'm no scientist. I carried on digging. I found a paper dating back to 1959, which I also didn't understand, that listed the following examples of non-specific erogenous zones. The sides and back of the neck, the armpit and the sides of the chest. It then went on to say that, quote, the pleasurable sensation perceived from these regions is simply an exaggerated form of tickle. The pleasant associations and the learned and anticipated responses concurrent with the stimulus produce the final amplified central sensation. Hmm. I'm not seeing a lot of support for the zone orgasm from the scientific community, but sex elder Lou Paget, amongst others, says it's a thing and that non-specific erogenous zones can be found on different people in different places. What makes one person light up could leave another out in the cold. This is what I find so interesting about them. There are no guarantees that what makes your eyes roll up into your head with pleasure so good you're not sure you can take it will have the same impact on someone else. Yours could be behind your knee or inside your right ear, whereas your neighbours could be the nape of their neck or the middle toe on their left foot. Wrapped up in the non-specific erogenous zones, therefore, 
is the drama, excitement and anticipation of uncovering where yours is or are. Your body's unique treasure map of pleasure. Good to also know that understanding erogenous zones can help if you are experiencing decreased sexual sensation following surgery, illness, disease, disability or injury. Luckily, there is lots of advice on where to start and of course I will share what happened when H and I took on the spot orgasm challenge. Covid-19 has changed me and is changing the world. The context in which I am sharing these final episodes has meant that I feel compelled to speak out on what is fizzing around my mind. In doing this, what is to follow may feel to some listeners like a departure from previous episodes. For me, however, it sits authentically with where I have always wanted 12 to go. Global events are showing me that I need to act in haste and that I had better put my money where my mouth is. As we all know, 2020 is not holding back. Just when you thought you had a handle on reality, another wave hits. H and I started the spot adventure before George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis. Up until the 25th of May, I was doing some soul searching. I've done a fair bit of pop, psychology, self-help, spiritual exploration in my time but I've never had the space or inclination to really examine and reflect on my life. But with COVID-19 and my mother's difficult demise due to Parkinson's, I found it hard to look away. My catchphrase for this unparalleled human experience has been, there's nowhere to hide. You can't hide from your abusive partner. You can't hide from your childcare responsibilities. You can't hide from the fact that working-class people and people of colour are higher risk. You can't hide from your own addictions as your day is stripped back. You can't hide from your loneliness. You can't hide from the different people you and your partner have become. You can't hide from inept leadership. You can't hide from poverty if your government is corrupt or just simply fails you. You can't hide from systemic and structural racism. To me, it feels like COVID-19 has created an environment whereby we are all being forced to look at the multiple shadows in our lives. Those in our hearts, our families and communities, and those playing out in our Western capitalist power systems. The shadows include the debt white people owe to the majority of the human population for their racial privilege a term I have taken from Ula Biss's article in the New York Times magazine, White Debt, in which she says, Being white is easy, in that nobody is expected to think about being white, but this is exactly what makes me uneasy about it. Without thinking, I would say that believing I am white doesn't cost me anything, that it's pure profit, but I suspect that isn't true. I suspect whiteness is costing me, as Baldwin would say, my moral life. James Baldwin, who was born in the 1920s and died in 1987, is seen as one of the greatest experts on white consciousness. My hope, like so, so many of us, 
is that this is it, the tipping point. That people of colour are able to heal through sharing their pain and that white people learn to create a space for that pain. That they listen, acknowledge it, hold it and become allies in shaping a future that doesn't perpetuate it. And that ultimately, all this pain will create collective human growth. But we've got a long way to go. And as a white person, I have a lot of work to do. Honestly, I haven't really wanted to be intimate recently. But I have to try and remember the wise words of Esther Perel. Pleasure in the midst of a crisis is essential. So with that advice ringing in our ears, let's talk about body mapping. Body mapping is a beautiful, extremely relaxing exercise to be enjoyed solo or with a partner. It is a simple self-exploration technique which is used in sexual therapy to find areas which are highly erotic. I've learned about two different ways to approach body mapping with a partner. The two I know about are, firstly, lie down somewhere comfortable and warm and let your partner explore your body from the tip of your head to the tips of your toes. Key to the experience is to take your time using gentle touch, watching and listening for positive responses and adhering to the only golden rule no touching of the specific erogenous zones. As a reminder, these are your genitals, nipples, any kind of lips. Love and sex expert Samantha Evans has written about the second way. She advises, quote, the person receiving the touching sits with their back against their partner's chest and legs around each other. The person on front concentrates on their breathing and relaxing, while their partner explores their body through gentle touch. Then you switch. If you are flying solo, the Furley app, an audio guide to sexual pleasure, has a body mapping exercise that you can follow and is free to download. Or simply set your stage, light your candles, put on your music and spend some time exploring your precious body and notice where you get a response. H and I were delighted to be starting with the basics, grateful to have time amidst the chaos for each other. I was really excited, partly because I was curious to know where on my body there would be a response, and partly because I wanted to connect with H and lose myself in the physical. He started with my feet, bless him, and it felt incredible to be the centre of his attention. I've started asking H for attention. I don't know whether it's a white woman thing, but I need quite a lot. Whereas I think H would be really happy if I was super loving and kind for roughly 10 minutes a day. I, on the other hand, want regular, in-depth discussions. I need help processing stuff and H has the ability to say just a few wise words that help me make sense of it all. So now, instead of getting annoyed or even outright angry when I need his attention and I'm not getting it, I ask. And sometimes it works. My feet. Oh my word. What heaven awaited me. 
When I was younger, I used to volunteer for trainee reflexologists to practice on me. When H started massaging my feet, I was worried I might fall asleep. No sexy zones here, but what a fantastic opener. I was deeply relaxed by the time he started working up to my ankles, ready for anything. When H reached my ankles, I became quite hysterical. But that was because it was ticklish, not because I was sexually aroused. I wonder if he had tried a different type of touch, whether it would have turned into something more. One to try in the future. This time, it was enough just to have that huge sense of relief and fun that comes with being tickled. Before I move up the body, I wonder how many of your minds have gone to foot fetishes right now. A foot fetish is when you love other people's feet, not usually the other way around. Goddess Aviva, a pro-dom, describes foot fetishes on a spectrum in her interview with Allure. On the gentler side, perhaps your partner enjoys kissing or massaging your feet. And on the more extreme side, you have foot gagging, stinky foot worship and trampling. Allow me to do the translating here, if these terms aren't landing for you. A pro-dom is a female sex worker who usually specialises in BDSM. Foot gagging is when you gag someone using your foot. And trampling is when you trample over them using your feet, sometimes whilst wearing high heels. Ouch! H didn't discover a latent foot fetish, but he did say that he really enjoyed seeing me relax and will definitely incorporate foot massages into future encounters. Result? I was expecting behind my knees to light me up. I seem to remember it having an effect many years back, but nothing. However, and I don't think I'll be alone here, the back of my thighs felt absolutely amazing. For me, it was the kind of pleasure that I usually try and get away from because it makes me lose control. But I didn't on this occasion. I stuck with it, and after a while, I didn't want it to stop. I kept asking H to stay with it, and he did. I don't know whether it was the relaxing build-up or that we haven't focused on that area in that way for a long time but it blew my mind. There weren't any other zones on my body that had quite the same effect. We tried my wrists and palms again, but I didn't have a reaction like before. My neck sent me into a state of complete madness, but again, that wasn't sexual. It was pure ticklishness. Hand on heart, H wasn't as vigilant about exploring the rest of my body after my response to his touch on the back of my thighs. He kept returning to them, and well, there's only so much either of us could take. Experiment over. What a fun night. Simplicity paving the way once again. According to Jane Greer, PhD, relationship expert in an article in Glamour magazine, other areas you might want to pay particular attention to in addition to those already mentioned include your stomach, the nape of your neck, lower back, ears and bum. H likened the spot or zone orgasm to the Loch Ness Monster, a mythical creature from his childhood that has supposedly been sighted in Loch Ness in the highlands of Scotland many times. 
It's the first time he's doubted the possibility of reaching one of the twelve orgasms. What a partner he is and has been. The cherry on the cake is that he has agreed to feature in the final episode of the series. So you'll get to hear from him, dear listener, what it was like to explore the 12 different ways a woman can apparently have an orgasm. Whether he'd do it again, which orgasm he enjoyed finding the most, what he found difficult about the process, what surprised him, and much, much more. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank him for his commitment. I will thank him again, but I wanted to make a start here. Only two more orgasms to try, people. The multiple orgasm and anal. I'm leaving anal until the last for lots of reasons. So watch this space for episode 12, the scientifically proven multiple orgasm. Follow and join the conversation via Instagram at 12 for pleasure. And if you feel so inclined, please rate and review where you listen to your podcasts so more people can understand about honouring female sexual pleasure. Thanks for listening.